You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, it's a pleasure today to introduce Dr. James Quinn of the Royal Irish Academy. And James is associated with, with a, a project which, has, which is now phenomenally successful, the Dictionary of Irish Biography. Uh, I think any biography of the Dictionary of, of Irish Biography would, 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 would begin with, with a, a discussion of, of its, its first decade or so, perhaps, before James and James McGuire became involved, where, where uh, really it didn't make very much progress. And those of you who use it now, the DIB, routinely and take it for granted, uh, we should all realise that it's thanks uh, to the initiative of people, particularly James McGuire and James now, that, that the DIB is such a useful research tool, because for many years it looked as though it wasn't really going to be anything at all. Anyway, James, uh, who is the executive editor, would be the right term, is going to speak now. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, good afternoon to you all. Um, it's good to see such a, a good crowd here. Um, just to give me an idea, do most of you use the dictionary? Are most of you familiar with it? Yeah, so, okay, so we, we, we don't need to go into any great explanation as to what it actually is. So, w what I'll try to do is give you some idea of the background and the, the history of the project. And um, now, in some ways, I started working with the dictionary in 1995. But that makes me a relative blow-in compared with some of the people here. Um, James McGuire actually was working on it from a couple of, uh, three years earlier than that, I think, wasn't it, James? And then, to beat us all, Linda Lunny was working on it from about, I think, about 12 years earlier than that, wasn't it, Linda? Right. So, actually, Linda, you probably should be up here. So. <laughs> okay, so, as Yuna mentioned, I mean, projects like the DIB are not completed overnight. They do take it. Uh, a great deal of time, and so I'll try and give you some, some idea of um, <coughs> the development of the project over that time, and also its life since 2009 when we published the nine volumes in, in hard copy. Okay, well the, the basic idea of biographical dictionaries goes back a long way. In Chinese historical documents from the Han Dynasty, which is about 100 BC, there are records which lay out biographical information in a manner which is strikingly familiar to the format used in modern biographical dictionaries. In Europe, though, the, the great age of biographical dictionaries was the 19th century, when the writing of history was one of the primary tools of nation-building, and all the great nations sought to establish and advertise their illustrious lineage. Most modern biographical dictionaries take their inspiration from the Biographie Universelle, which was published in Paris in 83 volumes between 1811 and 1853. Now, the, the full title of this work in translation spells out rather well the terms of reference of most subsequent biographical compilations, and that is Biographical Dictionary, Ancient and Modern, or the History of the Public and Private Life of Those Who Are Notable for Their Writings, their actions, their talents, their virtues, or their crimes. This was the model that influenced the great British Dictionary of National Biography, edited by Leslie Stephen, and published from 1885 to 1900 in 62 volumes. Now, it's fair to say that it was the heavy workload of the DNB, rather than being the father of Virginia Woolf, that caused 
Leslie Stephen to collapse with a nervous breakdown in 1889. And for some reason, nervous breakdowns and, and heart attacks seem to be especially common among the, the editors of dictionaries of biography. But we, ha we haven't done too badly on this one so far. Um, the DM Beagle was a, a remarkable achievement and has exerted a powerful influence on all subsequent biographical dictionaries in the English-speaking world. Um, Ireland, too, had its biographical dictionaries, such as Richard Ryan's Biographia Hibernica, 1819-21, which confined itself largely to political and ecclesiastical figures. Then there was James Wills's Lives of Illustrious and Distinguished Irishmen, 1839-41, which included a wider range of subjects. Also including a wider range of subjects was Alfred Webb's Compendium of Irish Biography, from 1878, John Crone's Concise Dictionary of Irish Biography, 1928, and of course Henry Boylan's Dictionary of Irish Biography, which was relatively recently in 1978. And of course there have also been numerous biographical dictionaries specialising in particular fields or localities. But for a long time Ireland lacked a modern, detailed, multi-volume biographical dictionary on the lines of the DNB. Now, while doing some of my own research on the Young Ireland movement of the 1840s, I found some notes by Thomas Davis, which showed that he was considering compiling a multi-volume biographical dictionary for Ireland, but nothing seems to have come of it. Perhaps it was one of those things stymied by his early death. Or, possibly when he saw how much work was involved, he had second thoughts, and settled for trying to bring about his country's cultural and spiritual regeneration. And... Some projects tend to be taken up, or, or these projects rather, tend to be taken up by three types of organisations. Uh, universities, major academic publishers, or learned societies, or sometimes a combination of these. In the case of Ireland, there was no academic publisher or individual uni university with the resources. And so it came down to a learned society, the Royal Irish Academy, which through projects such as the New History of Ireland, had experience of coordinating the efforts of a number of scholars from different places to produce a large multi-volume work. In 1983, therefore, the Royal Irish Academy embarked on a pilot project to examine the feasibility of publishing a national biographical dictionary and employed Dr. Linda Lunny, who I'm glad to see here, and who still works on the project. Now, for most of the next decade or so, some additional staff, notably uh, Christopher Woods and Richard Hawkins, were added to the dictionary. And James McGuire took over as managing editor from Professor Gordon Harris Davis in 1992. Um, as Yunan alluded to, progress on the writing of biographies was slow, mainly because of the low level of resources devoted to the project. And most of the project's efforts focused on creating a database of names from which a dictionary could be drawn. This database featured basic biographical details and very short career descriptions, and although a very useful tool in itself, lacked the comprehensiveness of a full biographical dictionary. Um, it's fair to say that some articles were written, but a relatively small number. Um, well, by the time I joined, most of them were beginning with the letter A, and progress was, was fairly slow. Now, this is a relatively common picture with biographical dictionaries throughout the world. Um, 
I mentioned earlier about editors suffering heart attacks and nervous breakdowns, and I think that's at least partly due to the mismatch between the, the magnitude of the task and the level of resources that are usually available to do it. Um, biographical dictionaries are massively labour-intensive works, and the money to employ the required level of labour is not always forthcoming. Um, soon after we published the DIB, we met a large delegation from the Swedish DIB, and they had just published their work. And they were obviously very pleased to see it in print, particularly as they'd begun in the year 1917. <laughs> um, and again, they're not unusual. The, the Italian Dictionary of, of National Biography that began in 1925 and published its first volume in 1960. Um, it's published its most recent volume on the letters PQ uh, in the year 2016, but it obviously has still some way to go to completion. And uh, there's a similar story in Poland. Uh, they began their dictionary in 1935 and are currently on the letter S. So, on the DIB, the decision was taken at an early stage that most of the routine entries would be written by in-house staff. Major historical figures, or figures that required particularly specialised knowledge, would be written by experts in the field, who were not members of staff, but were commissioned as external, and it has to be said also, unpaid contributors. Now, it was around about this time in, in 1995, as I mentioned, that I, I became involved myself. Um, around this time, the DIB was given a small increase in funding, which allowed the recruitment of a couple of extra scholars, um, including um, scholars such as Alan Govern and Aidan Breen, um, both now sadly deceased, who did um, terrific work on the early medieval period. And bit by bit, the number of completed articles began to increase. Um, a, a, real, a key year for the project, I think, was 1997, um, when the project was helped by two particular developments. One was the securing, by James McGuire, of a contract to publish the dictionary with Cambridge University Press. And they agreed to publish the hard copy work without a subvention, which is certainly unusual for, for such works. We're sometimes asked why the DIB was not published by an Irish publisher, but in 1997, there was no Irish publisher willing to take it on, and certainly not without a large subvention from the Academy. It's also the case that no Irish publisher would then have had the international reach required for the international marketing of a reference work of this nature. The decision was also made at this stage that the dictionary will be published as an entire work, and not periodically in separate alphabetical or chronological volumes as sometimes happens with works of this kind. And the second development was that the project managed to secure additional funding, again through the efforts of James McGuire, which enabled it to take on considerable additional staff. And no doubt it, it helped that by 1997, government coffers were beginning to look a little bit healthier. But given the rather uneven nature of funding of such humanities projects, I think securing this, this funding was um, a very significant achievement. Um, one of the things it allowed us to do was create another assistant, or create an assistant editorial position, which uh, actually I applied for. And, um, and also, we, we, from a project staff of roughly about seven to eight 
um, some of whom were part-time, we were able to increase recruitment and at one stage we had over 20 in-house contributors. In fact, a, a generation of historians um, almost really did a stint on the dictionary, such as Dermot Ferreter, Patrick Gagan, Anne Dolan, Marie Coleman, Paul Rouse, William Murphy, Bridget Harrigan, Lindsay Erner Bourne, and there, and there are several others. Um, one, one colleague once likened us to something like, um, said, had we been west of the Shannon, we would have gotten some small industry funding to keep people in jobs, basically. Um, so in the end, in-house contributors wrote over 7,600 of the 9,000 entries, amounting to about 85% of the total, with the remainder, of course, coming from external <coughs> contributors. So in a way, 1997 effectively marked the beginning of the second phase of the project's development, with the period 1983 to 1997 really being one of um, exploration and, and putting down roots. Um, so from 1997, the project shifted up a few years and began to produce articles, or began to produce the level of work required to deliver a nine-volume biographical dictionary in the relatively near future. Now, all of this had to be fairly tightly managed. Um, contributors were assigned articles by the editors and giving, given strict monthly deadlines to complete them. And uh, recognizing that a rather indulgent attitude can sometimes be taken to, to deadlines in academic life, DIB deadlines were, were fairly strict. Um, each month had a reporting day when the normally quiet DIB office in the basement of Earlsford Terrace, which was um, christened Bletchley Park by one of our, our staff members for given that it was so hard to find, so dusty and, and so dingy. And uh, this place would suddenly become, for this Friday in the month, would become a scene of feverish activity as contributors sought to deliver their month's work. And their performance was tabulated on a monthly report sent to the Executive Secretary of the Royal Irish Academy, uh, the much-missed Paddy Buckley, who was an enormous support to the project over the years. And it has to be said, was not averse to commenting on the poor performance of uh, any particular contributor in the report. Um, but this employing of additional staff allowed an increased level of specialization in the assigning of contributors and a marked improvement in quality because of that. And I think it was from this time that the project really began to gather momentum. In some of the better months, over 100 new entries would be submitted, and so the project continued into the mid-2000s, by which time most of the entries had been submitted. These were then read by members of our editorial board, such as Art Cosgrove in the medieval period, Aidan Clark in the 16th and 17th centuries, Edith Mary Johnson and James Kelly in the 18th century, Theo Hoffman in the 19th century, and Ronan Fanning in the 20th century. Once then they were approved, they were loaded into batches of 200 and sent to Cambridge for processing. Now, originally the plan had been to publish the dictionary in hard copy alone. And once this was done, then to look at the prospect of electronic publication, possibly in a format such as CD-ROM. But technology was overtaking such notions, and by the early 2000s, the notion of not going for electronic publication was almost unthinkable. 
So we decided to go for simultaneous publication in hard copy and electronically. This though meant a, a great deal of work, which was um, very efficiently carried out by Toro Reardon, who became the project's online administrator and still holds that position. Now, by this time, having a large and experienced in-house team was invaluable. And when some entries were assigned to external contributors, when entries assigned to external contributors were not forthcoming, we could, in most cases, assign them then to internal staff. And staff members such as Patrick Maugham, Larry White, and Linda Lunny did excellent work in this regard. But of course, in-house staff could not write everything. And one of the articles we lacked as we approached publication was um, that on St. Patrick. <coughs> so you can kind of think a, a dictionary of Irish biography without an entry on St. Patrick um, would probably raise a few eyebrows at the very least. But thankfully, um, Cormac Bourke stepped in at a, at a late hour with an excellent entry on Ireland's patron saint. Now, once the last batch was sent to Cambridge in 2008, we had the joys of, of proofreading the dictionary, all nine volumes, over 10,000 pages, amounting to 8 million words. And there were a few late panics in trying to get the publisher to accept last-minute changes. But eventually, by the summer of 2009, everything had been dispatched. Publication went ahead, and the dictionary was launched by then Taoiseach Brian Cowan in Dublin Castle on the evening of 18th of November, 2009. A night infamous for the famous theory Henri handball incident in Paris. <laughs> um, there were also launches in Belfast, where the late Seamus Heaney very kindly did the honours, uh, and in London. And in early 2010, we also had launches in New York, in Boston, and Toronto. This, though, was not the end of the project. The aim was to carry on writing biographies of those who had died recently. The cutoff point for the 2009 edition was that subjects must have died before the end of 2002. So in 2010, we began writing on figures who died in 2003 onwards. And in June 2010, published 36 new articles, the first supplement to the DIB online. So since then, every six months, in June and December each year, an additional supplement of about 40 new lives has been added. Most of these consist of people who died recently, including such well-known figures as Charles Haughey, George Best, John McGahern, Jerry Ryan, and Nuno Fuelon. We decided to adopt a variation on this, and in December 2013, we added our first missing person supplements to the, D to the DIB. <coughs> this consisted of names from any era who had been eligible for the 2009 edition but were not included. So, in effect, they were the ones who got away. Um, examples would be the film director, Brian Desmond Hurst, the Jesuit and historian, uh, Francis Shaw, and the camogie player, Kay Mills. All omissions, certainly, but I would think none of them, none of them too glaring. So we, we've added additional missing persons updates in 2015, and most recently in December 2017, um, which went live just a couple of weeks ago. And that featured, again, interesting figures such as the actress and singer Ag Agnes Burnell, the actor Patrick McGee, and the playwright Una Troy. And this brought to 723 the number of additional lives added to the online DIB since updates began in June 2010. 
And as in the nature of these things, the next batch is already underway to be published in June of this year. And that will consist of people who died mostly in 2011 and 2012, <coughs> um, including figures such as the politicians Gareth Fitzgerald and William Craig, and important cultural figures such as Louis Labrocki, Mae Binchy, and Carl Hoodman. And the great thing is that with, with each of these updates, the DIB becomes an increasingly valuable and comprehensive work of reference. Now, so far updated entries have only been available to those with access to the online DIB, but that will change from this year, as all of the, we're going to publish two hard copy volumes to include all of those who died in the years 2003 to 2010, and two updates of missing persons. <coughs> so these will consist of 600, 617 lives, and future regular hard copy publications will cover those who died after 2010. And we hope to increase interest in the DIB among members, that this will increase interest in the DIB among members of the general public, many of whom do not have access to the online dictionary. Now, another way in which we've sought to expand our readership is through the publication of thematic or commemorative volumes, such as 1916 Portraits and Lives, or Ulster Political Lives, um, published in 2016. And in these we've drawn on a selection of DIB biographies, greatly enhanced with excellent introductions by Patrick Maughan. And we plan to do more of these in the future. Already a volume featuring Irish people who emigrated to North America in the 18th century. Uh, these migrations began in earnest in 1718, and this represents the tercentenary. And this is to be edited by myself and Linda Lunny, and published this year by the Ulster Historical Foundation. So effectively, that, that brings us up to date on the basic history of the project. Now, I'll just maybe look in a little more detail at some of the mechanics of the project in particular about how we go about choosing those that we do. Now, the only definite criteria for selection were that the subject must be either Irish-born or have a significant Irish career, um, and they must be dead. So, in effect, the final decision is made by the editor, sometimes in conjunction with the project's advisory board. And in the many areas in which we lacked expertise, we relied on the advice of panels of experts in those fields, and a very great deal of weighing and sifting of recommendations went on about who to include. This enabled us to make informed choices in specialist areas such as medicine, science, and engineering, in which our knowledge was limited. Of the 9,000 dictionaries, of the 9,000 entries rather, included in the dictionary, I would say that roughly 7,000 or so would have been included almost regardless of the editors. But the remaining 2,000 or so probably owe a great deal to the interests, values, and prejudices of the editors. This, I think, is inevitable. There is no strict mathematical formula for including people in a work such as this, and sometimes an editor just has to go with his, with his or her gut feeling. Our selection, we have no doubt, is of its time and place. Historical scholarship, as with most other things, moves in cycles. And figures that may be fashionable today may be less so a few years down the line. Biographical dictionaries reflect and probably also influence this game of historical snakes and ladders. 
The criticism is sometimes made today that biographical dictionaries are elitist works, reflecting an old-fashioned view of history that concentrated on the deeds of statesmen and soldiers. While in the past it is true that the character of individuals was perhaps exaggerated as a cause of historical change, this, it seems to me, has been rather overcorrected by historical theories which entirely omit the individual and stress vast and personal forces as the sole agents of historical change. The real question is not whether individuals make a difference in history, but rather when, why, and how much difference they make. We would hope that in detailing the careers and characteristics of both major and minor historical characters in the DIB, to provide some of the material with which to answer these questions. Now one point I would make is that the dictionary is very much a reference work rather than a monument. And by that I mean we aim to include figures who we think readers are likely to look up, rather than simply including deserving members of the community. I mean, sometimes we get queries about figures who are pillars of their local establishment and the doers of much good work in their locality. But not all such figures are of major historical significance. And unless, as an editor, you can see that this is someone who is going to be looked up in the future, the best thing you can do is not to include. This can sometimes be galling to people who may not be pleased about the inclusion of undeserving types, such as criminals, murderers, paedophiles, but they've been included because of their historical importance rather than their moral qualities. Now, there's always been debate among the editors of biographical dictionaries about whether these works should include the famous or even the frivolous. In the 1880s, the original Dictionary of National Biography listed as potential categories for inclusion the following. Sports people, murderers, journalists, agnostics, secularists, actors, deviant clergymen, transvestites, and fat men. <laughs> Why fat men, I have. Um, now, such inclusiveness troubled the publication's theological advisor, who in 1910 noted with some concern that the recent supplement of the dictionary had given, quote, a not inconsiderable space to sports and even music halls. If we're to include amusements, I think the article should at least go in small type. So. <laughs> now, it's fair to say that some people lend themselves more readily than others to inclusion in a biographical dictionary. Historians undoubtedly have a tendency to concentrate on those who leave behind documentary evidence of their activities. The works of a great writer, composer, painter, or sculptor can still be appreciated with pleasure many centuries after their death. But the achievements of the performer, the stage actor, singer, or, mu or musician have a more ephemeral quality, which may greatly affect contemporary audiences, but are not so readily appreciated by later generations. The leading political, literary, and artistic figures in our history are generally well known. But what of those who built the physical infrastructure without which modern life would simply not function? Railway engineers, for example, tend to be quite well known. But that's because their achievements came in concentrated bursts of activity that captured the 19th century imagination. But how many of us know the names of the engineers, surveyors, and builders who constructed our road systems and laid out our sewerage and drainage systems. We've made a special effort with the dictionary to ensure that such important achievements are given due recognition. Now, one group that, that has certainly been underrepresented in biographical dictionaries in the past is, of course, women. 
Um, such works by their nature give pride of place to achievements in public life. And women's exclusion from public life has also meant, largely meant, exclusion from biographical dictionaries. Therefore, besides doing our best to find those pioneering women who managed to break into traditional male spheres, we've also tried to investigate in some depth traditional female occupations, such as arts and crafts, midwifery, and philanthropy, to attempt to find the outstanding pr practitioners in those fields. We were greatly helped by the significant growth in research and publication in these areas in recent years, which has thrown up many more names than were available in the past. In the nine-volume dictionary, just over 10% of the entire 9,000 entries were on women. But at least in the updates we've done since 2010, which mostly feature late 20th century careers, the number has increased to close to 20%. And if we continue on in that vein, the overall percentage of women in the DIB should increase year on year. We realize, though, that there may well be important names we've left out. And since the Dictionary Project will continue into the future, we intend to add these to the online version of the Dictionary on an ongoing basis. As I mentioned, with each such update, the online Dictionary becomes ever more comprehensive, and its wide range of search facilities are particularly useful to researchers. Users can, for example, search according to gender, states of birth and death, county of origin, religion, occupation, or any combination of these. The fact that the dictionary is a fully cross-reference work can assist the reader in making unexpected discoveries. By following trails of names through articles, the reader can be led in interesting directions, and even the best-informed reader can come across new information. The online dictionary also provides full text search facilities that allow the user to find all mentions of a particular individual, organization, or political party, and even to try and track down a half-remembered fact or phrase. For example, by entering the phrase, suffer fools gladly, in the, te in the text search, you'll find that nine subjects included in the dictionary did not suffer fools gladly, including one, uh, actually a trinity uh, botanist and marine biologist, who pointedly did not suffer fools, male or female, gladly. Now this, of course, brings me back to the content of the articles, which I think is by far the most interesting thing about the DIB, rather than talking in general terms about it. In addition to providing the essential factual material, we've tried, where possible, to access the significance of the career, especially in the longer articles. Personal relationships and characteristics, including human failings, have been included when relevant to an understanding of that career. The DIB is primarily a work of reference but I would hope that it's a work of reference that provides pleasure as well as information. Contributors have, for example, been encouraged to include relevant anecdote and incident that illuminates a subject's career. For example, um, in the article on Sister Genevieve O'Farrell, born in Tullamore, who made St. Louisa Secondary modern on the fault road into one of the most respected schools, uh, girls' schools in Belfast, we quote one former pupil, who described her as stern, courageous, intelligent, the only nun with sex appeal I'd ever met. <laughs> but she was as hard as yesterday's baps. My nerve endings would contract at the sound of her resonant free state voice. 
or the rugby player, Moss Keane, included in a, in a recent update, had a deep Catholic faith, and before international matches, would drink from a bottle of Lourdes water for protection. He also made a point of sprinkling it over Ulster Protestant teammates, such as Mike Gibson and Willie John McBride, with the assurance that it would protect them too. Or the recent article on the singer and actress Agnes Burnell noted that as a refugee from Nazi Germany, she did radio propaganda work for the Allies during the war, as the sultry-voiced Vicky. One of her broadcasts advised listeners to send urine sam samples to the Reich Department of Health for urgent testing. And right enough, the said ministry was soon deluged with thousands of unwanted urine sa samples, causing chaos in the German Postal Service. Now, I think it's details like this that often remain in the mind long after the memory of more important information has faded. And for such reasons, we'd like to think that readers will turn to the DIB, sometimes even when they don't have to. And we've therefore tried to make it something more than just a dry assemblage of facts. Thank you. Thank you.